0: Hey, this is Zachary Bartles. Uh, I'm really excited to introduce you to a new podcast that I've just started recently called High and Silver Presents the Pilgrim's Progress. It is a cinematic audio adaptation of John Bunyan's classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come. We've got a couple chapters out already. I'm super excited about how people are receiving it. Uh, I encourage you to listen to this pilot episode and if it catches your interest, Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and consider supporting the program on Patreon. But of course, you don't have to support it to enjoy it. I want you to uh, listen and tell everybody about it. The goal is to help get this story, which has sadly been kind of fading away over the last couple of uh, generations, back where it belongs uh, as a a precious resource for Christians uh, in their discipleship. So uh, go ahead and brew some coffee. Sit back, put on some headphones. That's the best way to listen to a podcast like this. High quality stereo headphones. And uh, I hope that you enjoy it. There's an old saying in the city of destruction. It's all about the journey, not the destination. A certain Mr. Lightmind was well known for repeating these words almost constantly, as if to justify everything he did by them. But even Christian himself had invoked the axiom here and there, mostly just to fill an empty space in the conversation, but also to keep his mind from drifting toward thoughts of his ultimate destiny. In the earliest stage of his pilgrimage, the saying had come to mind again and had immediately exploded into a thousand pieces, so violently that Christian almost thought he could hear it shatter. A pilgrimage is the journey, he realized, but it is all about the destination that was why he must always keep to the narrow path, even now as it twisted downward all the deeper into the valley of humiliation. Part of him wanted to turn back, of course, return home, or chart a new, easier route through more pleasant places, enjoying the journey, as it were, but even while the temperature fell with unsettling speed and the distant, desperate wails and whimpers seemed to close in all around him. Christian forced his feet to carry him forward toward the destination. The narrow path grew yet narrower and the ground beneath him rockier and more uneven. His new armor fit him well, but the leather doublet and leggings holding it to his body were still stiff and unyielding, digging into his joints. Every step seemed to bring a knife's dull blade again and again along the same raw lines in his flesh. Christian was thinking of taking a breather to sit and loosen his armor for a moment when he saw an enormous, foul creature coming up from the misty distance to meet him. Fear banished all other thoughts and concerns from his mind and fixed his feet in place beneath him, even while it threatened to take his legs. Turn back, he thought. Run. But he had no armor for his back, only a breastplate to protect his organs from a frontal assault. Even if self-preservation were his only goal, retreat would be foolish here. And so he stood, fixed in place. Give me courage and strength to stand in the evil day, Christian said aloud to the king of this land. With unbelievable speed for a creature its size, the beast covered the ground beneath them and drew up before him, hideous and horrifying. His yellow eyes bored into Christian's. He was clothed with scales which clinked against each other like the sound of steel chains with each thick, noxious breath that chugged slowly in and out like a steam turbine. Stretched behind and above him, blotting out the sky beyond, his black leathery wings spanned at least thirty feet. From his lion's mouth belched fire and smoke. The yellow eyes traced Christian's form from head to foot and back again.
1: The creature scoffed. You will now tell me, he said, who you are, where you come from, and where you are going.
0: Christian looked down to his right hand, which a moment ago had been trembling, and placed it firmly upon the hilt of his sword. I am Christian, he answered. I come from the City of Destruction, the place of all evil, I am going to the city of Zion." He straightened to his full height and looked up directly into
1: the monster's eyes. And who are you? I am Apollyon, the god and prince of your native land. Your prince, who now finds you fleeing like a rat to the realm of another. If I did not think you might still be of some use to me, I would cut you to pieces where you stand.
0: You are correct that I was born into your dominion. Christian said. But your service was hard, and no man could live on your wages, for the wages of sin is death, and so I've followed the footsteps of so many before me, and abandoned your cursed kingdom. (laughs) Apollyon laughed.
1: Easy enough to say, but there is no prince alive who would suffer his subjects defecting to another's dominion without severe consequences. But to show you that I am a kind and benevolent ruler... And because you have struggled to live on your wages, I promise this. Come back with me, and whatever our country can afford to pay you, I will pay it. It's too late,
0: and far too little. I've already given myself fully to another king, the King of Princes. Apollyon's lips curled back for a moment, revealing razor fangs glistening with viscous saliva.
1: Not to worry. It's very common for pilgrims like yourself, who have sworn their allegiance to this king, to lose heart or lose interest after a time and return again to me. If you do this now, all will be well."
0: What you're describing is a traitor, Christian said, and traitors are rightly hanged.
1: You had no problem betraying your allegiance to me.
0: I did not know any better when I served you, Christian said. I do now. Besides, the prince under whose banner I now stand is the only one able to absolve and pardon all my crimes, including those I committed under your kingship. And frankly, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his company, and his country better than yours. Now move aside. I am following after him now." The creature folded his wings up behind him and hunched in closer, looking smaller now. He pulled his tarish lips back into a thin smile that concealed his fangs, and said, Let's be
1: logical. Consider what lies ahead, the trials and dangers and snares, and how you will face them all feeling far less bold and courageous than you feel even now standing before me. Consider that most of this king's servants come to a brutal and painful end by my hand. And consider that I have come here into his domain in person to bring you back home something i have done for countless confused subjects breaking them free of his grip by brute force or clever schemes and so i will deliver you as well would your king of princes do that for you i think not christian felt a
0: surge of righteous anger filling him up you're wasting your foul breath and you're showing yourself to be a liar For you know that my prince did go into your domain to save us. And now, while he calls us to come out of your damned land, he has a purpose in that as well. To test our love and prove whether we will be loyal to the end. And as for the shameful and painful deaths that so many pilgrims have suffered before me, they have cause to rejoice, knowing that they would be received into sudden and eternal glory. Pilgrims do not expect deliverance now, but are content to wait for future reward when our king will ride down on your country on a white horse of war with all his holy angels and us behind him. Apollyon's pale talons clenched and a stream of purple-gray
1: smoke chugged up from his nose. Do you really think you will escape his wrath on that day? You've already failed many times since you took to walking this road. My spies have been watching you closely and keeping detailed records of your many offenses.
0: Indeed, I have fallen, probably more than you know, but I have obtained pardon for each and every sin, because my King is the King of Mercy. The beast's massive wings shot open again with a concussive whomp that almost knocked Christian to the ground.
1: I am an enemy of this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. And I am more than enough to keep you from going further along the way. Consider well what you do next, pilgrim. Careful, Christian warned. We are on
0: the King's Highway, the Way of Holiness. You are the one who should watch his step. Apollyon stretched his bear-like foot out to his left,
1: straddling the entire breadth of the path. I am void of fear, he growled, and of further patience. Prepare to die, for I swear by my own fiery throne that I will spill your soul. And with that, he lit a short
0: javelin with a blue flame from out of his mouth and hurled it at Christian, who brought up his shield just in time to glance the projectile off into the woods beyond. Christian drew his sword and pounded his fist twice against his breastplate. I will withstand you, he cried out. A wave of burning darts lit up the air around them. Christian dove, rolled, and came up to a tight crouch behind his shield. He almost cried out in pain, but swallowed it back down. His foot had been pierced by a dart through a seam in the armor. He pulled it out and tossed it aside, allowing himself a quick glance to survey the damage. He saw that the heat from the dart had cauterized the wound. No blood leaked from the blackened hole, although a wisp of steam was curling up from it. Shaking off the paralysis of fear and the narcotic effect of the growing smoke, Christian raised his sword once again and lowered the shield to an inch beneath his eyes. Instantly, a dart struck his hand, knocking the sword from it, and another connected with his helmet, rocking his senses and throwing him down to his back. He gazed up into the dull sky, spinning slowly above him for just a moment before his field of vision was filled with the demonic creature's hulking form.
1: You fall easy. Apollyon said like your pathetic prince before you give him my
0: regards From behind his blackened wings he drew a long and jagged sword Which he brought down onto Christian's prone body with all of his hellish might
1: Hi, and silver and gut Check media presents the pilgrims progress from this world To that which is to come, John Bunyan's Timeless Christian Allegory, as told by Zachary Bartles.
0: Chapter 1. Destruction Before he walked the narrow way as a pilgrim, Christian lived in the city of destruction, with his wife Christiana and their four boys. There he often went by his legal name, Graceless, And there he was happy enough, or at least he told himself he was, plying his trade, which is of no real consequence to our story, and filling his days and his thoughts with the same sorts of things that filled his neighbor's days and thoughts. That is, until he opened the book and began to read. Then everything changed. The book's initial effect was to sort of mute everything in Christian's world. The taste of food, the warmth of the sun on his face, the satisfaction of earning, saving, and spending money. They all lost their luster. Not that food was less flavorful or colors less bright. Rather, it was as if the very palettes these things had to explore now seemed so small and limited that they made Christian sad. He could see the most beautiful sunset imaginable, and the very fact that it was the most beautiful one imaginable would only serve to amplify his malaise. The momentary satisfactions that had previously propelled him through the stretches of tedious hours and days could no longer produce enough momentum. After that, an even more disquieting realization. There was growing upon Christian's back a large and heavy burden When Christiana first mentioned his hunched posture, Christian assumed he'd just slept on it poorly the night before and said as much. But the weight and the presence grew each day until one morning he looked into their glass and saw the burden, fastened to his back by cords which he was unable to cut no matter how he tried. Squirming out from the burden's grasp, forcing it from his person, trying to burn through the ropes, nothing would release its grip on him. It was clear that his wife and children could not see it, and were beginning to think he was mad to begin with, but it was as real to him as his own hands in front of his face, or the roof over his head. What's more, the cords holding the burden to his torso kept him from changing his garments, and before long he appeared more like a beggar, dressed in rags, smelling badly and bent toward the ground, than the pillar of the community he had once been. No longer filled with the minutiae, worries, and niceties of everyday life, Christian's mind continually resounded with the same question over and over again. What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? To the degree that he was able, he kept all this from his wife and children as long as possible, until one day, as they sat at dinner, she asked him pointedly, What is the matter with you these last few months? Are you angry with us? Are you dying? What? Oh, my dear Christiana, Christian said, and my sweet boys, I'm sorry I've been so distracted and dejected for so long, I'm afraid I am undone. What do you mean, undone? Christiana asked, her frustration showing through the thin veneer of concern. It's this burden on my back, to be sure, but more than that, I have it on the highest of authorities that this city of ours will be destroyed by burning sulfur raining down from the heavens, and when that happens, we will, all of us, die. Ah, I see. So, now we've added to the burden talk, fire from heaven. Lovely. Haven't you ever found it odd that our hometown is called the City of Destruction? Christiana bit down a smile. We learned the story behind that as children, remember? I can't recall exactly what it was, but I know it's not as on the nose as you seem to think. Besides, our city has been here for ages upon ages, and it's always been called destruction. And yet, it has never been burned up by flames from the sky. That is no guarantee that it won't happen, and soon. I suppose not. "'Dear, would you mind telling me who exactly enlightened you with this information?' "'It is written in my... in my book.' Christiana's face fell. "'And we're back to the book.' She put a hand over his. "'You're sick, my dear. You need rest. You need help. Should I call the doctor?' I think some frenzied distemper has gotten into your head, and you're not seeing things clearly. No, I wasn't seeing clearly before. As, as you're not seeing now, my eyes are open. Then perhaps you should shut them for a while. Please? You're clearly not hungry. You haven't touched your food. Just get some sleep. You'll feel better in the morning. You'll see. Christian opened his mouth to argue, but saw that his boys were all gaping at him, the youngest on the edge of tears, and so he agreed to go to bed. Sleep eluded him, though. He tossed and turned, he sighed, he wept... More than once, he was sure that his wife was also awake, but when he whispered her name, she would feign snoring to keep from being drawn into yet another conversation about the invisible burden, the pending destruction, and the book that had started all this unpleasantness. As dawn drew near, Christian finally fell into a fitful sleep and dreamed of two ill-favored ones skulking in the shadows of his house, watching the meal his family had shared that night as it unfolded and whispering to one another. We're going to lose him, the one said. He's good as gone. Don't even say it, the other scolded. He'll stay. We've got his wife and so we have his children. What man would push forward on pilgrimage without his family? The taller one laughed as he stepped from one shadow into another, unseen by those sitting around the table. What he doesn't know is that by staying, he guarantees they'll all burn together. The only hope they have is for him to blaze a trail for them. But look at him. He wouldn't know where to go even if he wanted to. And it's up to us to keep it that way. The figure stepped from the shadows up behind Christiana and ran his fingers gently through her hair. Christian woke with a start to find the sun already filling the room and his wife bringing him a board of bread, cheese, and cornmeal, and a cup of tea. Oh, thank you, darling. That's kind of you. You're welcome. She was chipper. How did you sleep? Horribly. Oh. And how do you feel? Worse. Well, are you hungry? He looked at the food before him and answered, No, not much. Fine she said, yanking the board back from him and carrying it off. At the door to their bedchamber, she paused and said, We've indulged this long enough, Christian. Too long. For my sake, for your children's sake, it's time to get over it. Pull yourself together and get on with your life. I think you should start by throwing that book away. She looked back at him. And I think you know it. She was gone before Christian could answer. It was several more hours before he arose. Having again slept in his clothes, he stretched as high as he could, given the burden on his back, and felt his body complain. Christian was still a rather young man, but he felt as if he'd aged a decade or more in the past few months. As he came out into the parlor, he found their four sons, all dressed in their Sunday best, sitting in a row on the floor at their mother's feet. In an armchair next to her was the Reverend Mr. Smoothman, the parson of their local parish. Oh, I'm sorry, Christian said. I didn't realize we had company. Please, sit, the minister said, gesturing at the most uncomfortable chair Christian owned. What is this? I've invited the parson here, Christiana said, to try and relieve your troubled mind. He thinks he can help you understand your book far better than you presently do and lay your mind to rest at the same time. Christian tried to sit, but the chair was too shallow and his burden had become too large. He slipped off the edge, stood again, and folded his arms. I doubt that is true, but if you can relieve me of my burden, I would be eternally grateful. We shall certainly try, Mr. Smoothman said. First of all, look at your children, sir. Think about the effect your sulking and carrying on is having on them. Boys, tell your father how sad he's making you. Matthew, his oldest, piped up. Bartholomew says his father thinks you're crazy as a loon, muttering and walking around like this. He stood up and did a broad impression of Christian bent low under the weight of his burden. Oh no, oh no, we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die, he mumbled. Samuel, his brother, laughed uproariously. (laughs) He's hit the nail on the head! Christiana fought down a spiteful smile and chided the boys. Children, the Reverend is here. Behave yourselves. Mr. Smoothman shifted in the armchair, as if to establish a new angle from which to come at things. Tell me this, where in that book does it say that our city will be destroyed? Christian pulled the volume from his pocket and opened to a marked page. For one, this passage here. For when the people are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. (laughs) Oh, is that what's got you all twisted up? The minister laughed. That's... no, don't take that at face value. That's, that's not for us. It was written many, many centuries ago to other people in another land. Sure, we can learn from it, but don't let it frighten you. Besides, I know that book very well, and there are many, far more uplifting passages that you could choose to focus on. Passages that will lift your spirits and make you a, a joy to be around. But what good are these? if destruction is truly coming. The parson bit his lip for a few seconds, studying Christian. He then turned to Christiana and said, Would you mind if I spoke with your husband privately, man to man? She threw up her hands. Please, Lord knows I've had no luck with him. Come, Mr. Smoothman said, standing and beckoning. Walk with me. Christian followed him out of the house and about ten paces toward the road, where the minister's driver sat waiting on the board of his carriage. "'Listen, Graceless,' the minister said. "'I told your wife I'd do my best to get through to you, but I didn't think for a minute that I actually would. You know why? When someone gets as twisted up as you, when they become fanatical and lose themselves in that book and those confounded ideas, there's no coming back from it. You're lost, my friend.' I will offer up a prayer for you now and again, but I doubt even the Almighty can bring you back to the land of the sane and the sensible. So you don't have any hope to offer me, Christian said. The parson's face softened a bit. I don't know. Maybe try to clear your head. Go for a nice long walk. See if things don't come back into focus for you. But I'll tell you this, it's your own concern how you comport yourself in your house with your own wife and children. But if I find you spreading your deep disquiet among my flock, I will denounce you from the pulpit as a heretic. He poked his finger an inch from Christian's nose, then dropped his hand to the man's shoulder, which he gave a half-hearted squeeze before climbing back into his carriage. There's no judgment coming, he called out the window as the coach pulled away. Christian wandered out into some nearby fields and walked up and down the rows of barley, reading and praying in turn, technically following the parson's advice, but truth be told, he'd spent most of his afternoons this way since he'd first opened the book and learned the awful truth of coming judgment. Over the next few hours, he found himself straying further from his home than usual, drawn to the far edge of their city. And as he walked, the question that had been continuously playing in his mind, what shall I do, what shall I do, became instead, what must I do to be saved? And rather than spinning in his mind only, it began to spill out his mouth. He walked faster and faster and said louder and louder, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Until he came to the end of the field and stopped short. Stretched out before him, was unknown land. Christian was in a quandary as to which way to go. At this point, he had only a general idea of how to head back toward his house, but he also knew that he couldn't go back there, at least not now. "'Excuse me, sir!' Nah. Christian jumped and spun to see a man approaching him from behind. He was thin and wiry with a rosy complexion, wearing a simple coat and breeches and no wig. "'I couldn't help but overhear you,' the man said." Why on earth are you shouting, What must I do to be saved out into the wilderness like that? Christian held up his book and said, Feel free to call me crazy, good stranger. Everyone else has. But I know from the pages of this book that I am condemned to die and after to be judged. I cry out because I'm not willing to do the former and not able to do the latter. I see, the man said, nodding. My name is Evangelist, by the way. He reached out his hand, and Christian gripped it by way of greeting. Christian. Oh, that's, that's a good name. Do you mind if I ask you something? Why are you not willing to die, since you are so obviously overwhelmed by grief and anguish and discontent, in addition to the natural evils that fill the world? Tell me, does it have something to do with that? He poked his finger into the burden on Christian's back. It, it does... I fear that this burden will sink me far lower than the grave and drag me down into hell itself. And that is why you heard me crying out over and over again, what must I do to be saved? And look, I don't mean to be rude, but if you don't have the answer to my question, then I should probably... But if that's all true, Evangelist said, and death and judgment hang over your head, why are you just standing there? Because I don't know what to do. Have you heard anything I've said? I've been asking... Evangelist plucked the book from his hand, quickly searched out a particular page, and held it up to him, pointing at a particular line. What does it say there, good Christian? Um, fly from the wrath to come. Yes, I've read that before, but fly where? Evangelist pointed out beyond an expansive field and said, Do you see the wicket gate? Way off by the horizon, Christian squinted. No, I I see no gate. Hmm. Do you see the shining light? I think so. Good. Keep that light in your eye and head directly toward it. Don't veer to the left or to the right. Go straight to the light. Understand? Then what? Well, that will bring you right up to the gate. When you get there, knock, and you will be given instructions. This is all the answer to your question, what must I do to be saved? Christian looked back at him, slack-jawed. Just like that. Well, yes, if you persevere. But first, you have to leave. What, now? Go! evangelist gave him a shove in the right direction and christian began to run at a full sprint surprised at how quickly he could move even with the heavy burden on his back as he went he began to hear the voices of his neighbors and his wife and his children all echoing in his ears calling him back pleading with him not to go toward the light and the gate and whatever lay beyond So he put his fingers in his ears and ran all the faster toward the middle of the plane, not looking back even once and shouting, Life! Life! Everlasting life! Make sure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To support this program, to gain early access to episodes, and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrim's progress. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, High and Silver. All rights reserved. Executive producer, Rob Knutson. Additional music and sound effects licensed from Pond5.com. To discover a new, more texts from and about the earliest Baptists, head over to www.highandsilver.com. And for more audio productions of my fiction, visit slash audio
1: Hi, and Silva. Cut.